and welcome to the second episode of Dreamers and Doers, where I interview, at least according to me, the people who shape the world of tomorrow. And today I'm very excited because um, my guest is Gaspar Koenig. So I first saw you on TV four years ago and a few of your books. And you're uh, probably the most famous, how would you describe yourself, like libertarian philosopher? Yeah, I'm on the verge of libertarianism, but not quite there yet. So I started with uh, classical liberalism, which is something that actually the French have invented uh, in, within the course of the 18th century and, and developed since then. Um, and and I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to the libertarians. Uh, if we refine, I could probably say I'm a left libertarian. Okay. Um, so the main difference is what really characterizes the libertarians is the idea of self-ownership. Mm -hmm. So you start with the idea that you own yourself, mm -hmm. uh, also in legal terms, that you have ownership, right, ownership rights on your own bodies, um, on your own data, mm -hmm. uh, on everything that you emit to okay. the world. And um, this has been first described by Locke in the Second Treaty of Civil Government, this okay. idea that I own myself. Okay. And it really departed from the uh, Christian tradition that God owned your own body and that your own body was a reflection of God and of the soul. So in order to secularize, in a way, uh, the social contract and philosophy, I think we have very little choice but ending up with this idea of self-ownership and it's very powerful and it's been so reinvigorated by Nozick in the 70s. Now, the question is, the world that is outside us, how do we own it? And there, the, there is an end. The right libertarians would say, well, this world, these natural resources, if you want, are unowned. So when you appropriate it, when you put your effort into the world, then everything you, you take from it is yours. And, and, and from that point of view, any tax is viewed as a forced labor. Whereas the left libertarians would say, well, those external resources are commonly owned. It's not that they are not owned, but they are owned by everybody, by humanity. So when you transform it, when you appropriate it and you transform it, the work you put in it is yours. And the product of that, of that work and the value you produce through your work is yours, no question. But you have to compensate the rest of the community for, for the material that you have taken out. Um, and, and, and that justifies a number of public policy measures, including, in my view, the basic income. And that's what the argument that Thomas Paine, at the end of the 19th, uh, 18th century, already made for the basic okay. income. Meaning you need to compensate the rest of the, of the community for the loss of the natural equality. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite powerful. And, and, you know, this idea that, yes, we have to determine our own values. Um, so nobody, and, and, and I don't think that society should be based on a set or a framework of common values or common ideals. That the civil, it's the role of the civil society to build up um, those, uh, the, that, that common morality as it goes. But at the same time, I think that the, the society or the government uh, is legitimate in a certain number of functions, including to give yourself the means of your own liberty, the means of your autonomy. Do you think, for example, basic income should be part of a government measure? Absolutely. And I think it's not because it's the end of war. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's more fundamental. It's because in order to ensure that freedom has some reality, mm -hmm. uh, that it's not only an abstraction, that it's not only uh, described negatively, mm -hmm. 
but it's also something that, that can be actually enacted. And you have to make sure that people also have the tools and the means in terms of education, for instance, but also in terms of material resources to activate their own values. And I think that's, well, that's a, what some call the real libertarian argument or the real libertarian argument from Plan Paris in favor of basic income. Uh, to me, it's the most powerful one. And tell me if I'm wrong, but to me, the kind of pure libertarian idea on this would be like, I live in a society with basic income if I want to, but if I don't want to, I can live in another society. Which I'm fine with that because we can, yeah, I'm fine with that. If you take the uh, Nozix idea, for instance, of an uh, utopia of utopias, mm -hmm. it's the idea that the world could be organized in a number of communities mm -hmm. and every community can set its own rule, including Sharia law, for instance. Which but, is just, yeah. That was the point of the, what the system interests. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but then the only constraint that, that the sort of world government we put to that uh, is uh, the necessity that at any time, uh, at any point in time, any individual can leave his community to join another. Yeah. So there is a real competition between yeah. those communities on a level playing field yeah. and that they cannot uh, uh, subjugate their own citizens. So, um, under that condition, okay. I'm happy for different societies okay. to try different ways of organizing themselves. But within those ways of organizing themselves, okay. I would promote okay. society okay. based on social libertarian principles. Makes sense. Okay. So, as long as we have to live in countries as they are defined today, it would make sense to have a basic income. But if we could create societies where people can move, yeah, and choose freely. Yeah. And probably, you know, my view is that probably they would, they would think it's the best system. Mm -hmm. And so progressively, mm -hmm. this will adjust and, and, you know, countries or communities will adopt that system. Mm -hmm. And that's the natural way things should go. So not from, you know, a centrally uh, decided yeah. pattern, uh, but something that would evolve naturally and incrementally with a trial and error process. Yeah. Right? And maybe the first experiences of basic income would be disastrous because it would be badly devised. Uh, and in that case, well, we have to, to, to move to other experiences. And it's, it's, I like the idea that this is a sort of spontaneous order, as Hayek would put it, that, that is emerging through those processes. Yeah, I, and I see you have a book here from Milton Friedman. And I saw a TED talk, actually, with Patrick Friedman, his yes. son. From the Seasteading, right? Exactly, yeah. Who's um, yeah, comparing so just what you're saying with what's happening with startups, actually. Yes. The example he gives is apps in your phone. Like you can always create a new way, and people can join it or, or not. Right. Well, that being said, in the world, in the digital world today, you have a number of uh, oligopolies mm -hmm. that I think are quite uh, uh, dangerous and threatening, uh, and uh, and that also, in a way, constrain individual liberty. Um, and and my particular approach to that is that uh, for the moment there is no uh, ownership rights on your own data. So you did your data that have been absorbed by the big platforms. They're not yours. You're not compensated from for what you, you give to them. And in that sense, I think it's not liberal at all. Right? And, and it's more an extraction of value rather than a creation of value. That's why we have argued in a report that, that we have published in my think tank with, with lawyers and, and economists uh, that there should be ownership rights attached to your personal data. And so you could create a the market of personal data, you could negotiate your data um, uh, also through intermediaries with the different platforms. And you could be either remunerated for your data if you want to share them, 
uh, at market value, or you could decide to retain your data, but in order to get access to the service, then you would have to pay for it. Yeah. So you would have a lot of different contractual arrangements, depending on your own opinions, on your own needs, on, on the diversity of, of, of uh, privacy approaches that one can expose. Okay. Um, actually, like, so you wrote a book about uh, some initiatives in the world that kind of liberal um, projects. Do you want to talk about some, maybe more details about one place where it actually worked really well and where it may seem counterintuitive in that sense? Right. So my starting point is that there is no country in the world that, that, that today really embodies uh, those principles. So what I did is that, uh, thanks to a, a very uh, rare and nice partnership with magazine Le Point in France, I was able to travel through 13 different countries and each time see a certain aspects of my sort of ideal world uh, 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 put into action. But not by people who would define themselves as libertarians yeah. or even liberals. It, it was very varied. So I went to see, for instance, the hackers in Berlin on the issue of, uh, of data. The hackers in Berlin, they are, they are you know, hard left. Uh, I went to see uh, well, people in China who would define themselves as classical liberals and, and they are trying to resist the communist um, regime in certain ways. Uh, I went to see entrepreneurs in Rwanda who have no particular political opinion, but they are like real entrepreneurs because they, they had really to fight for their life uh, by creating the tools that allow their fellow Africans to okay. communicate. So the three I think I was most interested in is microcredit in Peru, which is how by giving people access to credit, mm -hmm. you give them access to capitalism, and that's maybe the best way to solve poverty. Mm -hmm. Then there was uh, direct democracy in Switzerland, like in certain cantons, in certain departments in Switzerland. Uh, all the people gather at the center of the main town once a year and they actually decide, amend and vote all the laws that govern the canton. And it's not, it's not something, uh, uh, it, it actually involves huge decisions for the community. Uh, and, um, and, and I could see how mature the people are and how maturely they behave because that process of local democracy, as Stockville put it, is certainly the, the best pathway towards a more national uh, democratic involvement. And then the, maybe the third uh, uh, example I have in mind and, and will develop a bit more is, uh, is Finland. Just totally counterintuitive because I wanted to go in prison. And as somebody who likes liberty, I thought, well, what about those who are deprived of liberty? And <clears throat> The Scandinavian countries have built a model of what they call open prisons, mm -hmm. where the prisoners are as responsible as they can be. Mm -hmm. Meaning there is no, there is very few guards, uh, there are no walls, no barriers. So if you want to escape, you just escape. Mm -hmm. It's in the middle of the woods, it's an estate, uh, it's a combination of uh, little wooden houses, and they live in groups of like roommates of six people and they have the key to their room and everything. They have to be active during the day. They have to either work or study or do something with, with uh, at that time. But also, and they have to respect uh, a number of, of uh, obligations, including to report where they are, what they do. But otherwise, they live a pretty normal life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's a, the very basic definition of prison, to deprive you of your liberty and only of your liberty. 
And paradoxically, in those types of prison, you understand better what, what it means to lose liberty. Because when you are in a closed prison, so when you're in, a, in your cell, what they told me is you, you behave like an animal. And the guards in front of you behave like animals. And you, 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 know, you try to beat them, they try to beat you, everybody tries to cheat, and everybody behaves as an animal or an infant. Um, whereas in an open prison, you have to put yourself in prison each day. So you have the, 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 the obligations you have to respect are actually quite strict. But you have to respect them by yourself. You're not forced to respect them. And, and the best example, I think, is that the, the, uh, the limits of the estate uh, are indicated by uh, red sticks that are just planted in the ground. So if you want to trespass, you can. Nobody is watching you. But what the prisoners have to do each day is to make sure they don't trespass. So you reach those pickets and you have to think, well, that's it. That's my limit. And in fact, it's quite hard to think that for years and years, it's going to be as far as you can go in the world. And me, as a free man who is in prison, I could trespass. I could go further into the woods. They couldn't. And I felt there how painful it is to be deprived of liberty. But in fact, in fact it's, better, it's even better perceived in an open environment than in a closed environment. And it also corresponds to the idea that the prison, which is, I think, a liberal idea, which was first uh, expressed by Beccaria in the 18th century, the, the, the big uh, philosopher and, and jurist, um, that prison is not supposed to punish, but to protect society. So it's not supposed to harm people. It's supposed to deter others, also neutralize those who could be harmful to society, and try to make them better, so that when they reintegrate society, they behave better. And indeed, the open, in the open prison system, uh, the recidivism rate goes down. And the cost for society, even the financial cost, is lower. So you could say, well, why are those prisoners living like in, in, in very comfortable uh, places with, uh, you know, probably some facilities that even the, the free men next door uh, don't have? You know, they had, uh, in this place, they, for instance, they had a sauna, the lake, they had a, a high hockey place. And the response is the utilitarian response is if that produces better effects for society as a whole, then that would be a morally untenable position to, 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 to try to punish them you know, more, just to satisfy your instinct of revenge at the detriment of your own society. And then I'll have two questions. So the first one, so People can leave, and they don't. Absolutely, and, and, and funnily enough, the escape rate is lower okay. in open prisons than closed prisons. Well, first of all, very practically speaking, they know that once they leave, they are considered as fugitives. When they are another, they'll be caught. And when they'll be caught, they'll be sent back to a closed prison. Okay. So there is this threat of the closed prison, which makes them uh, behave better. But also, there is a question of trust. And I would say it's the same for the microcredit. The essence of the microcredit is that someday, uh, you know, Mohamed Yunus woke up and thought, well, we won't ask collateral. We won't ask guarantee. We will trust people to pay back. And in fact, the default rate in microcredit systems is lower than in the normal sort of institutional system. 
And in fact, you can compare the fact that the default rate is lower in microcredit and the escape rate is lower in open prison system because when you responsabilize people, when you trust them, well, they tend to, to behave better. Right? And I think it's a virtuous circle uh, that makes everybody better. And even when you speak to the guards in an open prison, they themselves changed uh, uh, when they transit from an closed to an open uh, prison system. They change their own behavior and, and they start seeing the prisoners as just fellow human beings. Um, so that's my a bit my conclusion, you know, on human nature uh, in general. It's, is that when you put, you have to, and that's where I'm not a libertarian. You have to devise an incentive system uh, which is astute enough so that people behave better not because they are forced to, but because you have trusted them, you have you have empowered them. In certain ways, um, and that makes them more intelligent. And so, yeah, you talked about human nature. So, basically, when I talk about these ideas with friends, let's say, usually the main objection is like that people can be free and responsible, and that it is all based on a pretty positive, right. optimistic view of human nature. So, do you think people? Do you think that? Kind of proof that people can be free and responsible. Yeah, I think the, the idea of the enlightenment on human nature is that there is no such thing as an essence of man, but there is the idea of perfectibility of man. And I think it's it's still very much um, it's still very much valuable today. And so when you think that man is perfectible, uh, then whatever the starting point, whether is a criminal or, or a, you know, poor person in Lima or a small entrepreneur in Rwanda or whatever, whatever the starting point, you can devise a system where he is incentivized to start taking his life into his own hands. But that system is pretty complicated. You know, it's, it's much easier for a government to just, you know, clamp down on bad behavior and, and try to, to regulate the way people live. It's, it's easy. It's the easy option. The easy option is, for instance, to prohibit drugs. Super easy. The other option is to put in place the regulation so that drugs are legal, but at the same time to make sure that the consumers know the products they are so, so taking. And, you and think if all drugs are legal, people won't tend to, people won't tend to start getting more drugs, which is what well, people might think at first. Well, if they want to take more drugs, you know, I have nothing to say against that yes. to start with. So is it a public policy objective that people should take less drugs? I'm not sure. Uh, but then on a more, uh, from a more utilitarian point of view, what I saw in Colorado when they legalized marijuana is that not only the consumption rate didn't increase, but criminality went down. And in terms of, of public health, it's of course much better for everybody because you can report your problems you have, the addiction you have to the hospital, even to the police, because now it's legal, so um, you're not uh, you're not uh, threatened by any criminal procedure any longer. And so, but I think it's an obvious case, right? That now most people are convinced of that. Yeah, no, another good example of that is just just this basic income. So the social system devised on conditionality, so you get access to grant if your revenue uh, are under a certain level or if you put your kids to school or if uh, you're looking for a job or etc which which is where what most of our social systems are built on um, induces uh, you know perverse effects so that people will start cheating you know with the system and 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 lying because they want access to this and that uh, and once they get the grant, they need to fulfill a number of obligations. 
and then as usual they will they will try they will do it superficially or they will do just enough to you know get the next grant or so the idea of UBI of universal basic income is just give them cash, no question asked, nothing asked, and they can do whatever they want with it. And so in the experiences that have been conducted in India by Gistanding, as well as is the experiences like small small scale experiences that I uh, witnessed in Brazil, in a small village, you can see always the same thing happening: is that people who get just free cash, even if they are poorly educated, even if they are from a very underprivileged background they act rationally, so they don't spend their money in the pub, as maybe they would do in a more you know, conditional system. And then they all have different needs. So some of them will uh, you know, take hairdressing courses because they have a sort of entrepreneurship spirit and, and they want to be a hairdresser, and so they will start inventing a new business because they have the security now. And, but others just need to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Others will buy classes for their kids so they can do better at school. Others will finally uh, get the possibility to to take the best uh, uh, to buy a, a bus ticket in order to work in the next time. Mm -hmm. So you don't know and you cannot anticipate what people really need. But what you can see is that when they get that that security, all of a sudden they become more reasonable and they start projecting themselves in the future. And in Brazil, the lady who was uh, organizing this um, uh, this whole uh, scheme actually told me that people started using the future tense in their sentences. So before that, they were only speaking in the present tense, and they they started projecting themselves because they had this this, this security ahead of them. So we're talking about some of these projects that work pretty well, and some of them are actually quite scalable because we talked about Switzerland or some yeah. projects in Finland and in India. Um, especially in the area of legalizing drugs or basic income, we can see there's more and more experiments. So is it, um, I remember last time we met, we talk, I told you about the Systeming Institute and how yeah. they create uh, areas where you can experiment fast. And you were telling me it was kind of already happening a bit in a dematerialized way. So with all the experiences, how do you see it evolve? Like? Well, I'm not blind, so I see the resistance of our you know, huge welfare states who yeah. probably, which probably in history have never been so big mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and have never divided so many laws. Uh, so I think blockchain could be a really good example. Exactly. Uh, but so I doubt that this process will really take place within our current institutions. That mm -hmm. may be the case. I would like to see that happening because I would see that would be the proper way to do it. Uh, and indeed, in the experiments that I've seen, well, those public policies can be applied elsewhere. And for instance, in the open prison, I'm, I'm very proud that after my uh, going there, we uh, issued a more academic report within the think tank. And the justice minister in France just said a few weeks ago that she, okay, she agreed with, with that approach and that they will try to open 15 open prisons in France over the next uh, five years. So you can, there are things that you can actually do. Uh, and on the basic income front, it's hard to see it happening without the an implication of the government because it's also a tax, you know, it's linked with the tax system. And it's not totally absurd that it could happen, especially in France, because we already have such a high level of redistribution 
that we in fact very well placed to implement the basic income that wouldn't change the redistribution level in the country so that wouldn't financially uh, disturb the level of income that people receive there will be adjustments but marginally um, so i think you know we can still push into that direction of reforming the state as it is um, and especially in the case of France, which I know well, and where my think tank is particularly active, I, I don't give up. Right? Uh, but on the other hand, I can see how you know, slow it is, how unreceptive most politicians are to those ideas, also because they clearly deprive them of some of their power. Uh, basic income, for instance, if you do that, well, then you, know, you have very, very very few means of uh, electoral corruption left, mm -hmm. right? Because you cannot uh, hand out grants as uh, discrim as uh, discriminately as you could do before. Cryptocurrencies, uh, if you want to, because then they don't handle exactly. Them. Well, and that, so that's why I'm, I'm looking with you know curiosity and interest uh, to all those experiences around blockchain, where they decentralize levels of of power. Uh, uh, Without, without asking anybody, right? You just do it. Um, and uh, cryptocurrency is a good example. So yeah, I'm looking closely uh, into that. Uh, and um, if, you know, maybe those projects will push the governments to move. And maybe governments would just resist that trend. And now it's quite undecided because some countries are exposing those new yeah. approaches, like Japan, where you can pay your taxes in Bitcoin. Uh, even in France, there have been some moves uh, by the economy minister recently to try to create a good legal environment for the blockchain to prosper. So that could happen, but if it doesn't happen, then probably people will do it by themselves in a more anarchistic uh, fashion, and why not? That's good. But how do you build prison with blockchain? You know, there is there is a limit, I think, to what you can do in a self-organized way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Like the blockchain, like the internet, like yeah, yeah, and, and it abolishes borders and everything. But you know, for instance, if you if you think of the internet now, Facebook is is sort of devising its own uh, free speech policies mm -hmm. of what is allowed or not on its platform mm -hmm. in terms of uh, pornography, terrorism, mm -hmm. you name it. But I don't think it's proper. I don't think it's the mission of Facebook to decide what the First Amendment is about. And the First Amendment is a very powerful piece of legislation. And so I would prefer the government really enforcing the First Amendment than delegating to, to Facebook the mission of assessing what the level of freedom of speech we should have. Yeah, or, or I think maybe users will just go to a new social network that's going to be built and completely decentralized. Yeah, but, but then there is a question of you know, the data they have, they have gathered, which makes competition very hard these days, mm. because they have this, this, uh, uh, the, the, the entry level is, uh, is very high. Yeah, that's true, but I can, we can see movements of... of it, it could yes. go very, I think it could go very fast, because people are connected, and if you know, people get, start to be, think like... And they start to think already... Or we want to leave Facebook because they become too powerful. Yeah. Well, there's no real alternative. But I think tomorrow, if there was like an alternative, you know, a bit like Telegram is a good alternative yeah. to WhatsApp, and an alternative like this, I think it could go really fast. Yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>
thanks so much, Caspar, for coming here. And thanks, Alex. This interview that was really interesting. I think I hope people will uh, really enjoy your ideas and this interview. Is there any work of yours that we can follow? I know you do most of your work in French, so how can we how can we follow your ideas? Yeah, well, this uh, so the things that I run uh, uh, as an internet address, which is uh, generationbib.eu. So you are welcome to go and visit. Um, few of our reports are available in English, especially the report on data ownership. The translation will be published in a few days now. Okay. Um, and as far as I am concerned, I have a Twitter account, which is Gaspar Koenig, that's is my name. Uh, I don't have any Facebook accounts, uh, for the reason we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I do hope that one day a few books will be translated into English. Okay. I hope to because they're really amazing and maybe we'll be different on that new social media. Exactly. Thanks, Gaspar. Thanks. Thanks.